And, and as they are doing that, we are going to be reading um, from Judges. Uh, you'll see once again, as we have in the last few weeks, um, a large passage is printed. Uh, while we'll be looking at that passage during the sermon, I will not be reading all of it right now. Um, so I will be actually reading the first five verses of chapter 13, and then I, as I will let you know that we'll be moving to 13 verse 24. Um, for the length, let's remain, seating, remain seated for the reading of God's Word. Chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel. From the hand of the Philistines. Continuing in verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and the honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, 
they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they went to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, your word is always good, even if it's sometimes surprising or confusing. And we pray for us, um, for me as I speak, for us as we listen. We want to hear what it is you have to say to us. Uh, we want it to do its work in our hearts to change us. So we ask that you would please do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for most of us, if we've been Christians for a while, we know that near the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is to trust our God with things that it's difficult to trust. So we know that we are told to trust him, for example, with finances. Say um, finances are tight, and then suddenly an expensive repair, maybe a car repair, or maybe the roof needs to be replaced, comes, and suddenly we feel just all stressed out, but then we remember, okay, God says, give us this day our daily bread is one of the prayers we are to pray. I, I can trust him. It's an area we know we're supposed to trust him with. Or health. Health is another one that it's hard, but we know what we're instructed. If we, if we get a phone call um, and tests come back and they don't look good and the doctor says it could be cancer, and, and suddenly we feel like our world is turned upside down, our, we feel weak, and yet we, we remember this is the time that we are supposed to cry out to God. He is the God who heals. Even if it means that we will die, we, we know he can be the one that we trust. We are called to trust him. There are times that we, we have a challenge to trust, and yet we know we're supposed to trust God. But let me ask you this. 
What if it's about something where you utterly fail? What if it's um, you have a problem with temper, and at a certain point at work, you just lose it, and you say something terrible, and it's almost certain you're going to get fired? Or, Or getting kind of more just down to earth, What if we just recognize our own day-to-day failure? We know we're supposed to be prayerful, but we don't pray much. We're supposed to lead our kids in such a way that helps them to grow as Christians, and yet we see our failure when it's our own failings. Do we trust God in that? Can we trust God with our own sins? I suspect, and you can decide as you think about yourself whether this is true of you, that many of us, and I include myself in this, have an easier time understanding that we can and should trust God when bad things happen to us. But it feels different when bad things happen through us. There's a sense that we almost feel like if if it's something that we do, well, then that one's just on us. That one's something that we just have to weather the consequences of. Can we trust God with our own sin? This passage this morning, I would suggest, tells us something that probably feels counterintuitive to, something, to us. And that is surprisingly miraculous, even in spite of what we do, and sometimes even through the bad things that we do, we should be confident that God will continue to work as good, that God will continue to be gracious, that we can trust God even with our own failures. That, I believe, is what we see in the story of Samson, but to see how that comes through, we're going to need to kind of step back for a little while and, and, and try to kind of get a sense of, of a larger picture because Samson needs to be located in a bigger story. Larger as in, let's go back hundreds of years, really to the early history of humanity, way back in the early chapters of Genesis, where things look terrible for humanity precisely because of their failings. We're told near the end of chapter, like uh, in, in the early chapters of Genesis, that, that at the Tower of Babel, God has humbled an arrogant, God-opposing humanity. He has confused their language. He has scattered them across the world. And while maybe at first that doesn't sound like a terrible thing, think about the implications. From here on out, warfare is now going to be just a part of reality. From here on out, there will be nations against nations that do not understand each other, that oppose each other. Thousands of soldiers will, millions of soldiers will die because of the division, the dissension, the misunderstandings throughout humanity. And the question that is posed here is, is there any hope for humanity left? Or has our own failure and sin and crookedness made hope unreachable? And into this context, we have in Genesis 12, a a remarkable, miraculous moment where, where God takes two elderly people, Abraham and Sarah, childless and fertile, and he makes to them an unthinkable, a miraculous, gracious promise. He says, 
Though you are old, by the time they will have their child, Abraham will be over 100. Though you are old, you will have a son. And, and this son will have children. And through this son, there will be a great nation that comes into being. And through this great nation, I will bring salvation to the world. Through your son, I will save all nations. And so sometime later, it happens. Isaac is born miraculously to Abraham and to Sarah. And as Isaac grows up, then he gives birth, and Jacob has, is born, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And from that initial group, this nation of Israel is born, a nation that is holy and loved by God, a nation born of grace and miracle, a nation with a very specific calling. Through this nation, the world will be saved. Except... As we come to Judges, we see an enormous problem to this. Israel wants none of this. They're called to be holy and belong to God, but they want to be like everyone else. They're called to bring salvation to the nations, but they just want to become one of the nations. We see this again and again whenever God gives them an opportunity to return to who they are, to what their calling is. Again and again, they turn their backs and go away from what God wants. And, and the question that is being raised is, is Israel's sin so great that God's plans are going to be thwarted? We've seen that God is, is able to deal with any powerful attack. He's able to deal with armies. He's able to provide food in the midst of a desert. But what will he do about a people who are literally hell-bent on turning away from him? Will Israel's sin thwart God's purposes for grace? And that is the story that, that stays, that lies behind, that is kind of haunting the story of Samson. Because in a real sense, as I hope we will see, the story of Samson is the story of Israel. So from the very outset, there are things that are supposed to feel, make us get a kind of sense of deja vu. You might have noticed in verse 2, we're told that here is, again, a couple who cannot have children, and yet God speaks to this couple through an angel, and, and what does the angel say? Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And if that sounds familiar, it's supposed to. And what's more, we discover that this son is supposed to be holy, a Nazarite, set apart, belonging to God, special. And this son has a distinct calling we see at the very end of verse 5. It says that he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. As Israel was born miraculously, so also is Samson. As Israel was called to be holy and separate, so also is Samson. As Israel was called to bring salvation, so also is Samson. In a real sense, we have in Samson the representation of the entire story of Israel. And so it shouldn't surprise us then we get to see who Samson is as we get to chapter 14. That just like we saw with Israel, Samson wants none of it. We're told at the very beginning of chapter 14 that he goes down to Timnah, one of the Philistine cities, 
But he is not going to the Philistine nation to do what he's called to do, to bring salvation. No, he's going to become one of the Philistines. He seeks to join them. Notice what he says. He talks about how he sees one of the daughters of the Philistines. Get her for me as my wife. I want to be one of them. I want to join them and immerse myself in them. Samson, for whatever reason, maybe, maybe it's because he feels overwhelmed. Maybe he feels resentful that he is told who he should be or what he should do. But he seems determined to turn away from his identity as one uniquely and wholly belonging to God. He seems to be determined to turn away from his calling to be one who is to begin to bring salvation to the Philistines. And instead, he wants to become a Philistine. And so, we have a tension here. Chapter 13 makes it very clear what God's intention for, for Samson is. His calling, his miraculous birth, his saying he will bring salvation. But we have Samson clearly, and we will see this repeatedly again and again, seeking in every way possible to resist that. How will these two intentions be resolved? Which is also the question that we've asked about Israel. Which is also the question we've been asking about ourselves. Given that we sin, how does our sin fit in with God's good purposes? So we, we see, again, this is Samson's decision, and it is, it is clearly a bad decision. We see that in the reaction of his parents. When his father and mother who were there, they know his calling, ask him in verse 3, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And by saying uncircumcised, the point in that is circumcision was a sign of belonging to the Lord God, it's a sign of the covenant. Saying these are not the people who are connected to God. These are the ones you're supposed to be saving us from. Can't you go elsewhere? But Samson is not willing. He has chosen this choice. And as we will see, at least at one level, we will see that this choice is catastrophic. This choice begins a chain reaction of unceasing betrayal and violence and chaos. But before we actually get to the wedding, we have this strange kind of couple of scenes that are important for us to understand what happens later. We find that Samson and his parents are traveling down to Timnah. Perhaps Samson wants to have a date with his fiancée. Samson gets separated from his parents, and, and something horrifying takes place. While Samson is alone, a young lion comes and just charges him and roars at him. And it is in this moment that we discover something else for the first time about Samson. That Samson is miraculously, extraordinarily strong. Rather than being like any other human being, and when a lion comes roaring at him, running away, Samson, with his bare hands, because he does not have any weapons, grabs the lion, and it's told he tears the lion apart with his bare hands. And then it's like he just like wipes off his hands, catches his breath, and keeps going. He doesn't tell anyone, no big deal, just a normal day for Samson, maybe. But, but then... A couple weeks later, he seems to be curious about his handiwork as he's walking by that area again. There's the lion carcass, or at least pieces of the lion carcass. And as he kind of like pokes his head in, he notices that there's a beehive. 
And why not? He grabs, puts his hand in and grabs some of the honeycomb and takes it out and starts like licking his hands and just kind of keeps on going and okay. So, so that is like this weird story that we have in the middle of things. And then finally, a little bit later on, it's time for the wedding. We, we discover that it's going to be in Timnah, so we have a Philistine wedding with Philistine guests and in a Philistine town with Samson being married to a Philistine wife. And if Samson is wanting to be like everyone else, it looks like he's getting exactly what he wants. Except there's this annoying little confusing detail. Did you notice in verse 11, it says, as soon as the people, and presumably this is the extended family, as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And I can only take this to mean is when they see this big, hulking giant of a man who they also realize, this guy is an Israelite. He's not really one of us. They're like, let's, let's get some security here. They bring 30 companions to make sure that if Samson gets out of line, they'll be okay. And, and based on what we see Samson doing next, he is irritated. There's something about this that probably reminds him that he's not treated like one of them. He doesn't like the idea that there's these 30 babysitters. And so he decides to kind of make an assertion of, of, of dominance. He makes a bet with them. Whoever wins this bet will get 30 changes of clothing. Now, he doesn't need to make this bet because he needs 30 clothing. Who needs 30 pairs of clothing? This, again, is to try to make him out better and to shame these 30 others. And the bet is, can you solve the riddle? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Samson is convinced that he has them because how in the world can anyone solve this riddle? Samson hasn't even told anyone. He's the one who knows what happens. But we see what happens next, and we see that there is some significance to this riddle because certainly the 30 companions treat it seriously because they come to Samson's wife and they say, we will burn you to the ground and your family to the ground unless you tell us the answer to this riddle. And so Samson's wife agrees to betray Samson. She manipulates him day after day until finally he tells her, and then she tells the 30 and on the last day of the wedding feast, when the time is almost up, they come back to Samson with a smirk on their faces, and they say, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson is not happy. Samson feels betrayed. Samson feels embarrassed. And most significantly, Samson is very, very angry. And so we can just imagine him leaving the party without saying a word, walking down a pathway to the local town. If we kind of modernize and imagine, he goes to the local bar where he sees about a little less than three dozen men playing pool, having drinks, and he just decides to start a bar fight with all of them. And all we're told is that at the end of this, all 30 are killed, and he takes the 30 sets of clothing off of their corpses, and he walks back, and he throws it at the feet of those 30 companions, and we're told that in hot anger, 
he went back to his father's house miserable. Now, I said earlier on that at one level, Samson's decision will push him into a catastrophic outcome of, of, of chaos. But there is another way that we're meant to read the story. And perhaps even if you've been reading along, you might notice a few details that we still need to mention about the story. One of them is this repeated mention of the Spirit of the Lord. It first comes up at the end of chapter 13, where we're told, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson. And it could probably be better translated, the Spirit of the Lord began to disturb Samson. It's easy at first to think that Samson is this very simple character. Whatever he desires, he does. He just kind of follows his impulses, and he's just seeking whatever he feels like in the moment. But, but here there's some complexity. There is the Spirit of the Lord at working in him, disturbing him. There is a battle inside of him where the Spirit of the Lord, who has this white-hot rage against God's enemies, is side by side with his desire to be one of them. And that, that, that passion, that rage, comes out in certain moments. It is the Spirit of the Lord that stirs Samson up to defend himself against the lion. And it is the Spirit of the Lord who enables him to destroy those 30 men. There is something going on where even as Samson is doing his thing, God is also at work at the same time. And, and, and the second detail that even more brings this to our attention is 14 verse 4, which I believe is the key to understanding this entire story. When his father and mother are distressed about Samson's desire to marry this Philistine woman, notice what it says in verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? It's, it's saying, yes, Samson was choosing something sinful, and, and God is not the author of sin, but yet somehow we're to understand that God was guiding and directing Samson's choices so that even despite what Samson's wanting to do, God is going to do something good through this. And isn't that what we see if we think about it? Samson's goal is to join the Philistines and to become like them. God's goal is to bring triumph over the Philistines and for Samson to be his. And what ends up actually happening? When Samson goes down, what ends up taking place? He ends up, even despite himself, attacking 30 Philistines. And where does he end up at the end of chapter 14? Not in the place of Timnah that he wanted to be. He's back in his father's house. He is intending one thing, but somehow God, even through his sinful choices, is doing something else, something good. And it becomes even clearer if we continue on with chapter 15. We can't go into this in as much detail as chapter 14. But once again, we see this chain reaction that at one level just seems to be chaos and violence. Chapter 15, verse 1 tells us that, that Samson, after probably cooling off for a few months, starts feeling amorous. And he's like, well, now this is the time for me to enjoy marital bliss and so he, he travels back down to Timnah. You can imagine him in his nicest suit, his hair carefully combed, carrying in one hand a, 
a young goat, which I guess must have been like the romantic thing in the day, this bleeding goat in his hand, and he knocks on the father-in-law's door, and, and the father-in-law sees him and pauses for a second. It's like, oh, Samson, you must not have gotten the memo. When you left, I assumed that you weren't going to have her as a wife, so I, I kind of gave her to your best man. But you should see her sister even more attractive than she is. And if you know Samson's temperaments by now, then you probably are not expecting Samson to react all chill to this news. And he doesn't. He, 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 once again, goes berserk, right? He finds 300 foxes, gets their tails, sets the tails on fire, and sends them throughout the Philistine crops, the grains, the storehouses, which might sound just kind of odd to us, but that is devastating to a nation that depends on this for their food. And so a chain reaction continues because, as you might imagine, the Philistines are not happy. When they find out that it's Samson who does that, they go take it out on Samson's wife and her family in Timnah and burn the house and all of them to the ground. And now Samson's not happy, as you might imagine. So Samson finds the people who do it and he attacks them and he brutally defeats them And as he's frustrated and exhausted, he returns back to Judah, to his homeland, and he basically hides in a cave. Story's still not over. Continues to be this chain reaction of chaos and violence because now the Philistines have recognized that this Samson guy is someone that we should be worried about. He is a real threat and we need to address it. So the Philistine army comes to Judah, to, to, to Samson's own fellow Israelites, and threatens them, and Judah agrees, just like Samson's wife did in the chapter before, Judah agrees to betray Samson. They take Samson, he allows them to bind him. We can imagine him being tied to a, to a tree somewhere in Lehi in the Philistine territory, and the Judah people start running away. And here in verse 14 of chapter 15, we have kind of this climactic moment. He is tied and bound, and it says the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And you're supposed to be almost reminded of the lion who comes shouting to meet him. And when you think about that, you kind of know what to expect. It says the Spirit of the Lord once again rushes upon him. And and these things that he's tied with become nothing more than like wet spaghetti noodles. He just like breaks them effortlessly. And he finds a donkey jawbone nearby, and that is the only tool he needs. And these hundreds of hundreds of soldiers who feel like they finally have him, he starts going through one of the most probably frightening moments of violence, more than anything we've probably seen on any movie, and, and he kills them all. And then, still filled with adrenaline, with this kind of sense of machismo, he, he, he sings a little song with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. Which is both not a very good song and also a wrong statement, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just him. But what's interesting is as he kind of calms down and he is brought to a place of exhaustion and a place of weakness. He, he, he comes to kind of a different place. He, he's, he's so thirsty, he's afraid he's not going to be able to escape Philistine territory. And notice what he does. Verse 18, and he was very thirsty 
And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Now, on one hand, this feels typical, impetuous Samson. But notice, he acknowledges that it's God who did it. He recognized the Philistines not as one of him. He calls them, just like his dad did, the uncircumcised. And most importantly, in this moment, he is calling out to the Lord God. Do you see what's going on? Again, he has all of this chaos. He has all of this stuff that is messy. But what do we see God somehow doing through it? He goes in to join the Philistines. He ends up beginning to bring salvation against them, conquering and destroying more than a thousand. He goes to try to become one of them. And where do we see God bringing him at the very end? Calling on the Lord and acknowledging the salvation God. Do do you see what's going on? As, As stubbornly sinful as Samson's heart seems to be, there is something else going on. His sin is not enough to thwart God's good intentions. When God calls Samson and makes him his own and says, this is what is going to happen, God brings it about. And we're supposed to understand that that is also the key to the story of Israel. As as messy as Israel is, as, as, as terribly sinful as they are, somehow in a way that we cannot understand as we're reading Judges, God is still going to be able to be gracious. He is still going to be able to bring salvation to the world, and He's still going to be able to bring His people to Himself. And if that is true in the story of Samson, and if that is true in the story of Israel then that must be true in your story and my story as well. When we mess up, when we do things wrong, I am not saying that there will not be any bad consequences. All we need to do look is, is look at Samson's story. We do not want Samson's story, do we? If we look at it, it's miserable because that is the way of sin. That is why God calls us away from it because he knows what is good for us. When we choose a way that God tells us not to, there is always something bad about that. And yet, what we also see is that somehow it is not enough to thwart God. In fact, that God is able to even use those wrong things that we do to bring about His right purposes for us and through us. You and I can trust God even with our sin. Let me close with just a couple of illustrations to try to kind of explain this a little bit. One trivial, one very much not. So when I was in college, uh, I very much wanted to be uh, an RA, a resident assistant, uh, for my junior year. And so my sophomore year, I had an interview about it, and I I did terribly on the interview. I I came across as as arrogant and intolerant and closed-minded because I was rather arrogant and intolerant and closed-minded. And, and I blew it, and it was my own fault. And it wasn't just because I like, made a mistake, it was because of my failure. And I only later realized that I blew it with my own sin. But what I didn't understand then is that 
What I needed was not to be an RA. I needed actually to develop a, a strong group of guy friends who would help me grow into who I was. And that's what happened precisely because I wasn't an RA the next year, but instead I was with a floor of other guys. And what I didn't understand then is that, that the extracurricular activities I would choose to do instead of being an RA ended up connecting me to a certain woman named Jennifer McCullough who would, I would end up marrying. My point in this is that I blew it, and it was my failure that caused the thing that I didn't want to see happen, and yet God used that very failure and sinfulness to do extraordinarily good things in my life. That, I said, is the trivial example. Now let's go to the one that is like the clearest, most obvious possible illustration of how this is true. When we think of sin, there is one greatest sin that is greater than any other that humanity ever committed. When God in His love came to this world in His Son, and He came to draw us to Him, to show His love towards us, to heal us, to rescue the world, what did humanity do? We, we mocked and rejected His Son. We sought to strip every ounce of dignity from Him, putting Him on the most inhumane execution device humanity has ever conceived of in the cross. We, as humanity, when we met God, we sought to kill Him. There is nothing worse that we ever, ever could do. And yet God, the very one that we sought to attack, what did He do in that very terrible sin? In that sin, He, he brought and ends to our death. He brought forgiveness for our sins. Through the resurrection, He brought life to bring us back to Him. In the very worst thing conceivable that we could have done, God did the most unimaginably glorious and gracious thing. And if you look at that, then there is one thing that is clear. Our sin cannot stop God's grace. Our sin cannot possibly thwart our glorious God's good purposes. And the point of this is not to say, therefore, let's just become lax about sin. It's no big deal. No. Again, looking at Samson, that's not what we want. The point is as we look at the things in life that we feel overwhelmed by, where we recognize our potential for failure, and we feel just broken, that we can know that even in these things, God will be good. Even in our worst moments, we can know God will be gracious to us. What we are meant to understand here is that you and I can trust God even with our own sin. So I invite us to do that even now. Whenever we come to God in confession, that is exactly what we are doing. We're saying, God, here is my sin. Forgive me. Work in me. Work through me. Let's spend some time doing that right now in silence for just a moment, and then I will lead us in the prayer of confession that we have in our bulletin.